0: Please be seated. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this season where we celebrate your coming as a child and that you came knowing that the cross was where you were headed. Amen. Good morning. Everyone's ready for Christmas, right? You got got everything all set? I, I know I do. Um, Just It it struck me this morning, I wanted to take at least one minute to thank everyone here. Um, My wife isn't here this morning. She's not feeling well. But this community has been amazing in sending gifts and gift cards and just cards or food or bread or cookies. We've got two bins of cookies that are like this big last night from somebody. Just thank you. It's meant a lot. So let's move on to... the passage for today. Um, so we are still in the midst, or near the end, I should say, the cap, the end cap of the series on repentance and joy. And as um, Alex has stated for the past few weeks, repentance seems like an odd theme to talk about with joy, except in the context of the gospel, because repentance before God is always met with open arms. Um, and that this is good news. In fact, it is part of the good news and essential to the good news that we have someplace and someone to turn to for absolute and complete forgiveness and last week Alex spoke about evangelism and how through repentance we come to joy and then a natural outcome is wanting other people to know that we've come to such joy we want other people to know that joy that forgiveness and that peace now I wasn't here last week but um I also learned something else by listening to the recording of the sermon, which is that a term in England, at least, I've never heard here for one's wife, is an old trout. Now, I, I did confirm last night, Kat, I think you're up there somewhere, that Alex has never actually called you that, and that this is not recommended. Husbands, do not do this. I just want to make sure everyone knows that. It's very clear that you don't like sign Christmas card, old trout, or whatever, you know. It would be that. So just, we'll be clear with that and move on. This week, we're going to talk about authority. Talk about authority and what it means to repent and have authority, which seems like an odd thing. And of course, the first thing I thought of when I read the passage and thought of this was the 1990s miniseries based on the Stephen King novel, The Stamp. It's the first thing to come to all your minds, I know. So, there's an image in that. I know at least one of you has seen it, and it's him. Um... (laughs) And oh, another one—it's got Gary Sinise in it, and Molly Ringwald, and Rob Lowe. It's actually got quite a few famous people. But um, it's a sort of end times parable. But near the end of the miniseries, there's a scene of three men walking hand in hand into the kingdom of judgment and death, which on Earth has become Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> and the devil has taken it over. And they're holding hands. These three men saying the Lord's prayer, walking. To what they know is probably their death. They get captured. They get put in prison, which they expect. And for the first time, they meet this figure of Satan that Stephen King has written in. And a big deal has been made about him throughout the whole series. And the old man in the crew is face to face with him, like between the bars of the prison cell. And Satan goes, you know, bow down and worship me, he says. You know what this old man does? He bursts out in the biggest belly laugh he's probably had in his entire life in the devil's face. He thinks this is the funniest thing he has heard in a long, long time. Who's in control in that situation? Who has the authority? Let's move on to the passage. So um, this passage is almost businesslike in its nature. Beforehand, we've had, you know, Jesus' birth, and we have a bunch of miracles. We have him speaking with authority in the temple. People are amazed at what he's doing. He's got lots of followers, and now there's so many followers, he decides to pick out some as apostles to help him lead these people. He names them and then gives them authority. To preach and to cast out demons, then they, he goes back to his house. It's too full to even eat at, because there's so many people who want to see him. And then, of course, his family starts saying, um, "Can you guys please stop listening to our very bizarre oldest son?" He's out of his mind. This seems like an odd thing to say. I mean, they knew him his whole life. But, I mean, every family has one of those people, right? That, that one that they want everyone to ignore. And Jesus has become that for them. They're probably saying this to kind of give themselves as a family an out, that they can kind of disown him, but also probably to give Jesus a way out, too. Because if he says, if he gets, like, ignored or says, yeah, something's wrong with me, he can get out of this sort of tenuous position he's in of the people loving him, but the authorities really hating him. Of course, having the way out, Jesus completely ignores it. As you can see as the passage goes on, he does more of the same crazy things his family doesn't want him to do. But we're going to spend most of our time on the idea of that one line about the authority. If you want to know about the 12 disciples and their names and all that, that's a sermon for I don't know, next year. Maybe, (laughs) So before we get into that, there's a difference between authority and power. Most of us think of them as the same exact thing, right? But power is the ability to change things or people to be what you want or what you think they should be, right? Mr. Incredible has the power to crush things or to destroy really big round robots. A president or a leader has the power to make laws or tell people what to do or to tell the army what to do. Authority is power which has been gifted or given to someone as a representative of the one who has it. So an ambassador of a leader would have authority to negotiate a treaty, but would not be the one with the power, him or herself. They actually are being given the power by someone else and don't have it within themselves to do those things. Now, this may seem like nitpicking, but I think it's really important because we tend to think of power in and of ourselves as the most important thing. We want the power over our lives at work, over money, over things, over our own lives, over our children to get the bathroom cleaned. This is what we want to change in our lives. We see the things wrong around us. and We want them to be fixed. And as usual, we have it right. We know there's something up. We know we want the power over these things and over ourselves. But we're wrong on where to get it from. We're wrong to try to get it from ourselves. In fact, um, in psychology, those who have lots of power end up functioning rather strangely. They actually start to show the same symptoms as someone with a damaged frontal lobe in their aggressiveness and in their deceitfulness. We think power is what we want and need, and as soon as we get it, we start to destroy the things around us. In fact, something is wrong with power for ourselves. It doesn't solve our problem of fear because we still know that something's wrong because we're acting kind of like one with power, but no authority how does that work? Well, think of this image, a movie most of you have probably seen, Back to the Future, right? More of you have seen that, I know, at least five. But the bully, Biff, right, I think it's from this movie, is holding McFly like this at a distance. And is going like this with his arms, right, trying to punch him, just can't touch him. McFly has the power to punch, right? He has arms, he has some strength, he knows how to punch, that involves a fist hitting something or somebody, but he can't do it. His power to punch is completely ineffective. It's like swimming in a vacuum. You just don't get anywhere. That's what it's like to have power with no authority. And we tend to focus on the wrong thing. Let me give a, a modern day real world example that might help with this as well. I'm currently doing Lyft and Uber ride-sharing, right? I meet lots of great people, it's really interesting. One of them was a young woman from Puerto Rico. And she told me that Puerto Rico as an island has become completely dependent for everything from outside, mostly from the United States. They basically have to have 10 days of supplies of water, gas, oil, food, everything on the island in case there's some sort of disaster. They have 10 days of supplies so that if they're cut off from the world, they can survive. Well, there was a hurricane a few years ago that lasted weeks in terms of them being cut off from the rest of the world. After 10 days, everything ran out. And her father said, who still lived on the island, I now know what it feels like to starve to death with a pocket full of cash. We think money is the more important thing. We think that's where the power is. We think that's where we get our nourishment. But the food is far more important. You can try to eat money, but you won't last very long. I think the dyes are actually toxic, so don't try it. All right, so there's this distinction between power and authority, and we seem to focus on the wrong one all the time. So these disciples get authority in the passage. And where does it come from? Who is the one giving them the authority? Jesus. Or God, in other words. He's the one giving them the authority. And like last week's sermon on evangelism, they're given this authority and they're sent out to do things they could never do on their own. In Luke's Gospel reports one of these stories about them being sent out with this authority to cast out demons and even heal the sick. And they come back thrilled. They're like, Jesus, even the demons listen to us. They are amazed. I mean, demons, these are creatures that haunt people, possess people, follow people. They cannot be gotten rid of by us. And yet, with a word, they flee from them. These demons are powerless against the disciples, and they're amazed. Why wouldn't they be? But the question still remains, here is the Messiah who has come down to bring them freedom from their oppressors. And despite this demon thing, which is really cool, um, Herod is still their king. Still makes their laws, still taxes them. There's still the emperor in Rome who doesn't even know they exist. Do they have any real power from this authority that affects the world? I'm a fan of fantasy novels. And when a deity grants power in a fantasy novel, it's like, wow. You know, the one I'm reading now, this guy can deflect 500 hours with the power of the wind, right? And fly and do all these things. That would be cool. I mean, with that kind of power, these 12 disciples could walk into Rome just themselves and just overthrow the whole thing, right? I mean, this is God we're talking about, why not that kind of authority over the wind and the rain, to like stop a sword with your hand. That's another one, you know. They don't get that. This demon stuff's cool. But is it really that important? Well, evidently. It's God who gave it to them. He considers this important for some reason. He considers it primary in importance. So why is that? What is the real power that they're given? What does it say? It says to preach and to cast out demons. Well, who are demons? Agents of the devil, right? Agents of the evil one. Agents of the real enemy. In Matthew, this story is followed with a long text of how Jesus describes what they're going to run into And he says in that, do not fear one with the power to destroy the body, but the one with the power to destroy the soul. In other words, who is your real enemy? You're given authority over the one who can destroy your soul. And that is far more important, he's saying. In Luke, when they come back in that story and say, we have power over the demons, Jesus says that's great, but don't be thrilled with that, but with the fact that your name is in the book of life instead of death they are preaching repentance in the forgiveness of sins they are demonstrating this power over the demons they have power over death and judgment the devil is known as the accuser the devil is known as that he, he who condemns death and judgment are his realm And it is what we fear the most. All right, death we get. Yeah, everyone fears death. Judgment, really? Well, just look at any article on public speaking and people's psychological response to public speaking who fear it. Their fear response, fight or flight, you know, the natural sweating adrenaline response, is greater than that that they have when faced with death. Yeah, we fear judgment. Ostracization, being made fun of, being rejected. That affects us far more sometimes than the idea of death. Ask any teenager who's thought about suicide. So we have this preaching going on, freedom from the two biggest things that we obsess over in terms of fear, and there's resistance. Really? Why is there resistance? Why does his family say, "Don't listen to him, he's crazy." Why do we find people who hear this news and go, I don't want to hear it, go away? Well, like the bully, the world wants everyone to be miserable, right? I mean, the bully beats up the kid, takes the lunch money, and now you're miserable, and I'm miserable because I feel bad and guilty, but I still feel a little bit better because you're miserable with me. The bully is threatened by the peace that repentance with God brings. Emotional systems, the things we grow up with, regardless of how dysfunctional they are, are very stable. Ask any addict who resists most in their recovery. It's usually their family. Because the family has learned how to deal with a dysfunctional person in their midst. They've learned to survive. they learned how to live and function and feed each other and love each other, and then all of a sudden this person changes and they want part of this healthy system that the other people have and they don't know what to do. How do I let this person who's been drunk for 15 years straight but been clean for two years make decisions for the family? Do I let the person who's been gambling for five years have a credit card? Maybe with $50 and... statement's mailed to me. That's my story. Right? We have learned to function in this system because the power of judgment and death is the power that Satan holds over the world, and it's what we have learned to cope with. We have learned to survive in that environment. We have grown up Figured out how to maneuver it. Don't tell me there's something better. Then I have to let go of everything that I am. That news is too good. I don't believe it. And the accuser will speak in our heads. I mean, that is what he does. He loves to tell us that we are not good enough. That we don't deserve this. And if we fight him on his terms, in our own power, we will lose every time. Always. He is more powerful and way more clever than we are. Just is. I mean, think about it cookies. All right. How many of us have said, I'm not going to eat these cookies tonight? Right? How many of you have succeeded in that for more than one night straight? And if you have succeeded, you've probably gone and done something else that was bad for you. Had a couple glasses of brandy or something like that instead of the cookie. Now you feel better about yourself. You know. That's the problem. It's impossible to resist him in our power. We can't do it. The reason he wins is that he's always right. When he calls us a hypocrite, you're right. I'm a hypocrite. calls us a liar, you're right, I've lied. When he says you messed up again, he says you resented that person, you didn't do well enough, you could have done more, he's right, every time. And we end up like McFly defending ourselves, right? He's the boy sitting there holding us like this, going, you're such a hypocrite. No, I'm not. I'm not a hypocrite. You're right. I'm a hypocrite. You know, we're just like him. Flailing away and unable to fight him in our own power. We just can't do it. But his trick is he follows up all those truths with lies. He says, you know, you're really such a hypocrite. He can't love you that much. You messed up again? Well, maybe he does love you, but not as much as if you hadn't messed up. Now he's a little bit disappointed in you. I mean, if you hadn't messed up, it would be okay, but you're kind of a subpar Christian. I don't know why you even try. You should probably just stop going to church, because you're a failure anyway. And you can't even get one night without cookies. You're a terrible evangelist. Don't try. He doesn't even like you. He tolerates you. Maybe on a good day is what the devil says. But this is the good news of repentance is that those are all the lies. That he starts with the truth and then moves into the realm of lies and that's far more effective than lying outright, isn't it? The good news of repentance is that it was never meant to be beating ourselves up, flailing away, promising not to do it again and I'll be better next time. It's supposed to be instead an act of remembering just how much in need of the cross we are. I don't care if it's the first time, which is beautiful, or the hundred and first, or the thousands and first, or the mil- however many times you have gone to repentance, it's about remembering how much we need the cross My mother, who's 80, when asked what she has learned the most over her 80 years of being a Christian, said just how much I need Jesus. Not how to care for people, not how to be a better person, but how much she needs to lean on him. His lie is that we are less in need of the cross than we were before. That somehow we should be less dependent upon it. And it's not about that. It's about learning about Jesus and not in a new way. I should say in a new way sometimes. But not about something new. Recognizing this, repenting and realizing how much in need of the cross we are and how much he loves us, lets us stop flailing away and to stand up and to look the devil in the eye and then start to laugh in his face. Because we are no longer afraid of fear and judgment and death. Those things have been stolen away from him because perfect love Casts out fear. That old man laughs in his face. You know what he says when he's laughing? And the devil's threatening him. He looks at the devil and says, all you can do is kill me. Death, where is thou staying? That's his only power. And he does kill him. He shoots him six times in a rage and stomps off because he has no authority over this man. It's been stolen away by the perfect love of God, by the fact that this man knows that he is loved and created by a God and is going someplace far more beautiful than he is right now. And that gives us authority, knowing that. Authority in the face of our own self-deprecation and hatred to stand up, laugh at ourselves and at the devil, and go, what are you going to do? at him. He's given me authority to laugh at you, to know that I am loved and free from guilt, free from judgment, and free from death. Amen. Amen.